Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode features a discussion between a healthcare professional and person living with HIV to inform strategies on improving care delivery, specifically when starting antiretroviral therapy. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care. During this episode, Dr. Asold Butler, Chief Medical Officer at Crescent Care, and Marissa Gonzalez, Chair of the Community Advisory Board at The Well Project, consider real-world and patient-informed solutions to support sustained engagement in care when starting ART. For more information on our faculty, along with a link to the complete program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started with Dr. Butler. Let's start out today talking um, a little bit about starting ART. Um, it's a really broad topic. There's a lot of things to talk about. And Marissa, I know you're going to definitely have some thoughts on it as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just maybe as a grounding point, let's talk about what are the guidelines coming from DHHS and IAS USA around ART initiation. And particularly, I think the things that they like to talk about are what to start and when to start. And then we can kind of talk a little bit more maybe about the hows, because uh, of course, it's great to have a guideline, but when the rubber meets the road, there's a lot of complexity and nuance that comes into play. But in general, the guidelines are all on the same page of saying really the it's best if possible to start ART as soon as you can after diagnosis. Um, and so looking at uh, the U.S. National HIV AIDS Strategy, one of their major goals is to link people to care immediately after diagnosis and provide low barrier access to treatment. And they really kind of focus on, if possible, within seven days of diagnosis, um, or at least as soon as possible. And both DHHS and IAS agree with that assessment. And the idea is that starting early kind of helps ground folks in the idea of being on medications. It helps sort of set that uh, expectation. And then it also helps from a health standpoint in reducing viral load immediately, reducing inflammation and some of the bad outcomes that can come from having unchecked virus in, in one system. Um, and then there's larger kind of population health things of reducing viral load in the community, reducing the likelihood of transmission. So lots of reasons for doing it this way. And it's been shown to be acceptable and effective in multiple populations, both abroad and in the U.S. There's a good amount of data behind starting as quickly as you can. With specifically thinking about what regimens to start, when you start quickly, you're not going to have a lot of laboratory information, right? You might have some information about the patient and their life, but you may not know what's going on with their blood work. So it does limit down what you want to start. Obviously, you want to start something that's tolerable, that's not going to cause too many side effects, and something that's effective. So for a rapid start where you don't have blood work available, the recommended regimens are going to be a uh, second generation INSTE like Bictegravir or Dolutegravir uh, with an NNRTI background. Now, if that's not going to work, we do have an alternative regimen, which would be a boosted Darunavir. So that's also considered recommended. And again, with an NNRTI background. And the idea is these are very robust regimens. You don't need a lot of blood work. They're tolerant of renal function and things like that. So they're really, really good regimens. One thing to consider is if people have been on PrEP before, specifically if they've been on uh, a cabotegravir based PrEP, there is a risk that they could have resistance to INSTEs. 
So in those situations, particularly, you want to use a boosted darunavir regimen. And so that's kind of the basics of the guidelines. Start quickly and start something effective and tolerable. But, you know, like I said, it's all well and good to read this in the guidelines, but when we kind of come to reality and what it actually means to start, there's a lot of nuance and conversation um, to be had with the patient. And Marissa, I'm kind of curious as to your experience um, with starting and what your feelings are about these recommendations. Yeah, absolutely. So my story is a little different and unique, right? I actually tested as HIV positive through my gynecologist's office at a just an annual visit. So she had to connect me to an ID provider. And initially, it when I reached out, it was, uh, we don't have anything available for almost three weeks. But, you know, thankfully, my provider was able to put in a call and they were able to see me much quicker. But as far as the appointment went, just being able to understand what it meant to start treatment so quickly as I was still wrapping my head around the diagnosis, I think was probably one of the biggest barriers because most people don't expect to receive this diagnosis. And then let alone within a 48 hour time frame, generally now starting to have conversation around a lifelong treatment. Um, and then what that treatment looks like and with certain advances and what are some side effects and the importance of making sure that you continue the medication on a daily basis, especially if you're not used to doing anything on a regular basis, something like taking medications. So there's so many things that go into it that I think depending on who the individual is when they're receiving this diagnosis, as far as understanding what it means to get started on treatment, and the importance of continuing treatment regularly. You know, you hear all the time about if you had long periods of without having medications, you could form some resistances and really understanding the severity of if you were to become resistant to a medication, especially with where medications are today, where they're cocktail forms, right? So if you become resistant to one type, you could potentially become resistant to maybe four or five treatment options. So getting started with treatment outside of just understanding the the importance of the longevity and the consistency, there's definitely that big mental hurdle as well. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple things that are super important. And I, I've definitely seen on the other side of that kind of picture where things can kind of go sideways and, and it can be difficult. So one thing you touched on, which is people get diagnosed in different settings, right? I work in a clinic that has a lot of coordination and navigators and things like that, which are great. So if somebody you might test positive in a sexual health setting, but then we can really quickly get them in with an HIV provider within a day or two. Not every, and I realize I'm very lucky to be in that kind of setup. A lot of places that may not be the, the situation. It might be like what you experienced, which is that you're getting diagnosed at your OBGYN, or you could get diagnosed at the ER or at an outreach event or something like that. So kind of thinking through how do you get from the moment of being diagnosed to being in an office with somebody who's going to really be able to provide that treatment and what's happening in that in-between space, right? Mentally speaking, psychologically speaking. So how's that transition happening? And I, it's different everywhere. But when the patient is actually coming to see the provider, I think it's really important for providers to keep that context in mind. It's a really different thing if you're diagnosed by an OBGYN who you've been working with, who you know and you trust and you have that great relationship with where you can have a conversation with her about it versus if you're 
tested at an outreach event where maybe there's a counselor who's talking to you, but that person's a stranger. And now this is really your first time with a provider and everything has been very overwhelming. It's interesting because I think from my end, I see people with all sorts of reactions. There's no one way that somebody reacts to finding out that they're living with HIV, right? I've had some people who came in and they were like, yeah, I kind of knew beforehand and I already know I have friends who are living with HIV and like, I kind of know what this is about. And and then you have other people who are just absolutely devastated by it. And it runs the gamut of all kinds of things between. So you really as the provider, you have to kind of create a little bit of time and space. And I realize visits don't have a lot of time and space, unfortunately, but it is very important to create some of that time and space to understand where that person is at with just their understanding of what's happening. And then like you talked about, really understand what the medications are and you're not gonna get everything through, right? Not every piece of information is gonna get sent across in that first visit. So kind of maybe picking a few highlights and saying, like, let's talk about this today and then really close follow up and saying we're going to see you back in a short period of time to really get into the next steps and like talk about it more and assess how you're doing and how you're feeling with the medicine. I'm sort of curious as to what your experience was. One of the things we try to do in our clinic is it's not just the provider, right? We have multiple people who are going to be working with a patient as they're coming in. So there's a navigator, there's case management, there's behavioral health if that's needed. And then we, again, like as a provider, I try to see the person back really pretty quickly within ideally four weeks just to follow up and see how the actual pills are doing. But there's all this other stuff that's happening in between. And I'm curious, did, did you have that kind of experience when you started the process? funny that you said that because it's almost like you were in my brain because I was thinking <laughs> as you were saying because we know right it's no shock that appointments are very structured and there's not a lot of time especially with a new diagnosis sometimes you may not be able to give the kind of time you want to give in an appointment so you spoke exactly to what I was going to say as far as having that other support staff more specifically in an ASO or a CBO right but when you are being treated or you are receiving that diagnosis from an entity that's not set up in that structure, it's very different. So for me personally, I got my diagnosis from my gynecologist, got transferred over to see an ID doctor that was within the same practice, but they were ID specialists as a whole. So it wasn't just HIV specific. So they really didn't have any case management. They didn't have any peer workers or anything like that. So it, it made it feel a little bit more difficult to navigate everything from my standpoint, because it wasn't their focus. The focus wasn't HIV, right? So once I did end up transferring over to an ASO, an aid service organization, now is where I was really met with that extra step of support where I've got case management, they have peer counselors, they have specific nurses that just focus on answering questions about medication and, and different aspects of the journey, if you will. So there's definitely a difference in receiving the level of treatment when you're considering or talking about going to a provider that's specifically focused on HIV and AIDS versus an ID specialist as a whole. That's really interesting because I am an ID specialist and I'm also an HIV specialist, but I started out first as an ID specialist and it's funny because I think a lot of ID specialists obviously can manage HIV, but it really is kind of its own subspecialty. 
And I think it is important. And what I would say is obviously we all as providers only have so much control, right? We work where we work and some of us can advocate for more services. Some of us can't. Sometimes it's a Ryan White clinic. Sometimes it's not. What I have recommended to people and what I would probably recommend to the audience listening today too would be to really get to know your local services, right? Maybe you work in a hospital or even an ER, right? I feel like I see so many people who are diagnosed from the ER. And it would be so helpful if people know like, okay, this is where I can send somebody to receive this service. Like maybe we don't offer behavioral health, but I know that there's this great organization over here that does great counseling and can get people in kind of quickly, which maybe that's not true, but (laughs) I know there's been a big backlog on mental health um, in many places. But know who are the ASOs, who are the people with Ryan White funding in your local area who maybe have case management and behavioral health and other pieces that can be brought to bear. Because I feel very lucky that I work in a clinic where we are able to have those things in-house. To some degree, we had to build them. So I would say if you're in a position to be able to advocate for those services within your within your clinic context, it's really worth it. Right. It's worth it for how well you're able to keep people in care It's worth it for what it means to the patients. These kind of ancillary services make a huge difference in my experience. And there's plenty of literature to back that up, too. But if you don't have those and you can't advocate for it, then know who are your partners, get to know them, reach out to them, get to know who the the intake people are that you can really do a quick handoff and, and be able to say to somebody when they're in your office, like, hey, we may not be able to give you a therapist here, but look, there's this great organization. This is who you talk to. I'm going to set you up with them and try to make it as smooth as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just makes me think about the whole it takes a village thing, right? Like at the end of the day, ASO, a CBO, ID specialist office, they're not going to be able to take care of everything, right? Because there are so many layers when it comes to considering the treatment of HIV as well as just getting started with ARTs, because there is, like you said earlier, there's some individuals who are like, you know what, I kind of expected this. And there's other individuals that are totally devastated by it because they did not expect the diagnosis based on whatever their circumstances were. So I think being able to really play on that, it takes a village and understanding that not one office is really going to be able to provide everything unless they have such a large overhead that it's important to know who are the organizations in the area. I even think about like United Way, for instance, if someone does not know, like, who can I turn to for certain types of services or what partnerships can I build? That's a really good place to turn to, to be able to start now finding out who are the organizations in the area, but also now starting to formulate those relationships. And I think it's important to also know that a lot of this that piece of it requires a community person, somebody who is out there and that's attending certain type of community-based events and community-based meetings so that they can really be the liaison for the clinic while they allow the specialist and the provider to do what they do and really lean on their support staff to be able to do a lot of the other things. Because at the end of the day, we're each just one individual, right? So there's only so much that we can do. So really being able to lean on all of those additional services. And like you said, mental health is a big component. A lot of people can't offer that within their clinics. So what does referring look like or what does that partnership look like? When we had our symposium, a lot of individuals in the poll stated that they don't have a relationship. They don't offer the service. 
some of them don't even really ask. And if they are asking, they're not asking at every appointment. So it's, it's really going back to some of the fundamentals and understanding what needs to be the key during these medical appointments and how often we need to be doing those assessments to make sure that the individual is getting the treatment and we're addressing what needs to be addressed because it's always going to be different. Yeah. And I think it's a really good point. One of the questions that I have come up a lot is, how do you get that all in one visit? And I think the answer is you don't necessarily get it in one visit. It's a lot to be covering up front. And that's where that frequency of contact becomes so important. I think about my patient panel. I have some patients who I've been seeing for, you know, 9, 10, 11 years. And they see me every six months and things are and they're great. And they've been on the same medications for a long time and things are very stable. And and that's all well and good. But when I'm seeing a new patient, I'm going to see them pretty frequently for my visits and then also be making sure that they're getting these other services because there's a lot to cover. I think one of the things that's really important to understand in that first visit, like I say, everybody's in a different state of mind. Some people are going to be in a state of mind where they're really open and receptive to hearing all the great things you have to say and all the information about the medication. And then some people, it's going to just be like a wall. I had a patient not that long ago who, you know, later on I talked to him and he's like, you may have told me something in my first visit. I have no memory of that visit. Like I have completely blacked it out of my mind. I think that's a reality. So it's something that's important to understand that repetition is going to be part of this. So certain things that maybe really have to happen at every visit for the first several visits. And some of those things are going to be absolutely doing some mental health assessment. And it can be simple, like it doesn't have to necessarily be a huge in-depth screener. In our clinic, we do PHQ-2s, which is a two-question thing that the nurses do. It's very easy. Now, it's not perfect because I have certainly found situations where people tell the nurse, like, everything's fine and answer negative. But as soon as I get in the room, you can just tell something's a little bit off and that you need to dig into it a little bit more. But some degree of mental health assessment should be happening, certainly at the beginning at most of those visits. And then assessing the medications, right? Like you said, for many people, this is the first time they've had to be on a medicine on a daily basis for their whole life. Our medicines are really good right now, right? We have great medicines. One pill once a day compared to where things were is awesome. You know, we're now getting into this, these injectables and many other options. We're in a really great place. Where we're struggling in the world of HIV is getting all the other things set for success that people can take the medicine and be able to live full, healthy lives and understanding all these other complexities that are kind of in and happening in and around the patient in that moment. So reassessing the medicines on a routine basis and asking basics of, are you having side effects? Talk about what those side effects are. Are you able to take a many every day? And if not, like what's going on? What's, what's getting in the way of that? And doing it in as non-judgmental a way as possible because this is really new for people. They're going through a lot and, and really kind of coming at it with that understanding is super important. You really don't want to be in a situation of saying like, tisk tisk, you need to take your medicine. It's more like, where's the struggle and how can I help with that struggle? But it really has to be looked at, at least at each visit for the first probably four or five visits, if not every visit, you know, thereafter. And I, again, I realize people are time crunched, but those two mental health and, and what's happening with the medicines side effect wise, and is it actually working for you? In my mind are two that really have to happen consistently. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about complexities, right? Because for me personally, I've been on this journey for almost eight years now. And HIV is like the furthest thing from my mind most days. So it's from a provider perspective, or even from clinical support perspective, also understanding what are some of the other complexities and things that are hindering the individual from being on treatment? Do they have stable housing? Do they have stable food and nutrition and even just nuances of insurance? And do they have insurance? Are they underinsured? And things of that nature, because there's so many things that can come up, especially if someone is newer as a patient when it comes to consistent medical treatment. Even for me, I remember there was one point, I think I was maybe two years into diagnosis and I had ended switching up my pharmacy to one that was closer to work so that I didn't have to drive further into town, which was away from my home. And when I went, they said, okay, it'll be 3,000, I don't know what dollars. And if it was anyone who wasn't familiar with processes of medical, right, they would have likely just walked away without their medication. Maybe they would have called their provider's office, maybe they wouldn't have, but because I've worked in healthcare, because I worked at an insurance at that specific time, And because I knew that I had a history of my treatment, usually when I picked up my medications, generally there was a very low copay or there was those assistant programs that might be available. So I knew that that wasn't normal, but I chose to advocate for myself in that moment. But even considering how many people would have maybe just been frustrated in that moment because they had some other complexities that they were dealing with in that moment that it was like, I'm not going to be worried about this right now. And maybe now that starts a process or a trend of, okay, I'm not going to get my medications because of an error from a pharmacy side or an insurance thing that people don't know about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the derailing effect of stuff like that. A lot of what we work on in the beginning is habit building, right? Like you said, this is a change. I think there's however many hours it takes to build a habit. You have to do something consistently for like four or six weeks or something. There's some data behind this. Like you have to do something consistently for for a six-week period before it really becomes kind of ingrained. And I do feel like a lot of what we do in the beginning is helping people to maintain that consistency while they have to be really conscious about it until it can get into a habit form that you're like, okay, this is just part of my routine. This is part of my daily life. And of course, for some people, that's going to be easier than others. If somebody's unhoused, there may not be a daily routine, right? Every day is going to be its own kind of situation. In those cases, you may have to think more creatively about how to assist somebody with doing something like taking medicine every day. I think the pharmacy one is so true. And I think I imagine many providers can empathize with that. I have had so many patients, not specific to HIV medications, but just any kind of medications where they run into some issue with the pharmacy. Pharmacy didn't fill it. They didn't get it. There was an insurance hiccup. And the patient's like, well, I guess I'm just not going to take that med. And then I see the patient three months later and I'm like, why haven't you been on this medication? And I'm like, well, the pharmacy didn't give it to me. And of course, in my mind, I'm like, call me, just call me. (laughs) I get it. Like, like you said, it's not always a person's number one priority. If I don't have this pill, like I could call my doctor and go through this rigmarole or whatever, or I could go pick up my kids from school and go deal with the 8,000 things I have to do, or I'm late for work and I have to work 12 hours, seven days a week. And like, I don't have time for this. That's where understanding your patients and their priorities becomes essential. And figuring out, again, ways to keep open lines of communication 
whether it's through portal or finding other ways to say, look, if you have a problem, like this is how, this is a way we can deal with it. Yeah. And I think another really important thing to consider as well is where is this individual going to after the appointments? Like, are they going home to family members who they're hiding this diagnosis from, or are they going home to a supportive household or individuals that they live with because that is also a reality that a lot of people don't share this diagnosis with family or friends or immediate loved ones so now there's that added layer of i have to take this on a daily basis and now i have to hide or make sure that the people in my immediate circle also don't find out that i'm taking these treatment medications as well so again we talk about complexities that can also be another one because we can't think that everybody is just freely able to take certain medications, especially when it comes to a diagnosis like HIV, because there is so much stigma and there's so much uneducation around HIV. So even though we've come very far when it comes to advances in treatment and things of that nature, but I think overall as an industry, we can agree that there's still a lot of miseducation and misinformation from a societal standpoint. Yeah. I don't think it can be understated how much stigma comes into play really all throughout the continuum of living with HIV. I think in the beginning, it poses particular challenges, but there are many challenges that just last ongoing. Initially, there's a lot of work on internalized stigma uh, at, that can be really helpful at the outset. And again, this is where behavioral health, peer support and things like that can have a positive influence. For me, this often comes out when I have that conversation about barriers to medicines. Like I was saying, I usually really try to keep assessing mental health and assessing medication, just how things are going with medicine at each visit. But part of that, how things are going with medicine can be a, again, if somebody's saying, well, I'm maybe not taking it every day, we start to say, okay, well, what's going on that's preventing you? And then they may say, well, I have to hide my medicine in this, the back of my sock drawer, and then I forget about it. And so we start to think through, like, how do you address that? Maybe you're staying with family who, yeah, you they can't see the medicine. And if they did, they might kick you out or they might have some sort of negative response. And I can't sit here and say, like, oh, well, everybody should be so tolerant. Of course, everybody should be so tolerant. But I, I can't deny your reality, which is you may be dealing with folks where there is heavy stigmatization. On the flip side, I've also seen folks where maybe they build up the stigma more in their own mind than what their family would actually bring to bear. And I think sometimes it's hard to know where that difference is, but that's sort of the internalized piece. Because I do think a lot of people come in with their diagnosis and know very little about HIV and what they know is super inaccurate and very stigmatized. And I think kind of breaking that piece down first so people can kind of get comfortable with where they're at with their diagnosis for themselves and then to kind of look externally and see where are the spaces where you have some room to move. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, like you said earlier in the conversation, as far as really building that rapport and the relationship with their provider is really going to be important because if they can't be open and honest with the provider, how can they be expected to be open and honest with their family or their friends or their loved ones, right? So really having the comfort and knowing that the provider truly is genuine and wanting to help and listen. And, and sometimes that's only built over time. But I think it is really important from an individual perspective when they're going into these providers offices is to remember that they have to be open and honest about everything because that's the only way that providers are able to provide 
the best course of action or the best course of treatment because they need full transparency. I mean, kind of switching gears a little bit, even for me, I started out on one regimen and then I had decided that I was going to switch to pill form birth control. So then my provider was like, oh, we need to know that because now you can't take this one specific medication. So we have to switch you to another. So really from a, a patient perspective, having to have those open and honest conversations. And I know that our audience is mostly healthcare professionals. So kind of leaning back again on support staff and having them remind the patients, this is the time to talk about anything and everything that we need to talk about when it comes to your health overall, not just HIV, because while HIV might be the center, there's so many other things coupled together that we just want to make sure that you're getting the best course of treatment and something isn't happening that's hindering the course of your treatment. And that's really true. I have in the long run, and this is sometimes a conversation I'll have with patients up front, kind of depending on where where they're at, but HIV may not be the center, right? Like it's at a certain point, it may really be other health concerns. Maybe it's diabetes or smoking or high blood pressure that are really actually going to end up being the larger medical challenges for that patient. And the HIV is something that's just kind of in the background doing well and still needs to be assessed and addressed, but may really not be the larger picture and, and may not be the priority in the long run. I think another thing that's really important, I started this thing off kind of talking about regimens to start. And I think the key there is start, not necessarily beyond lifelong, right? There's a conversation of, yes, the way in the current state of HIV treatment, treatment is lifelong, right? And, and that we're helping mentally prepare somebody to say like, yeah, this is something ideally like you're going to be on probably for many, many, many years, if not lifelong. But it isn't necessarily that regimen that you're starting with that's going to be your lifelong commitment. It's a limited number of regimens that are recommended for rapid start. But once you have the labs, once you kind of know more about what's going on with the patient, once you have a full picture of their other medications, other priorities, it may well be that switching to something else is totally appropriate. So it's also important to understand like, hey, we're going to start with this, but this is a starting point. This is not a forever. If this isn't working, we have other options. And I think knowing that there is some choice available can be a little bit relieving for a lot of patients. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great word as far as choice. When you think about the conversation and, and talking about lifelong, but knowing that while it might be lifelong, this does not have to be lifelong but including the patient in the process of, okay, these are the treatment options that we have starting out. For all, they might have similar side effects. Some may have different, even just from showing, because I've even seen in my provider's office where they have like the actual pills to show the different sizes, like even using that and encompassing that into the conversation, because who knows, maybe this is, again, an individual who maybe has never really had to go through having to take medication on a daily basis. And now you're putting something in front of them that's what would be classified as quote unquote like a horse pill and that might be difficult for them to engage in having to take this on a daily basis. So again, just using the tools that are available to incorporate it as a team decision on what the patient feels is going to be best for their lifestyle, right? Are they traveling a lot? Do they have to hide the medication? And just different things to consider. Yeah. And that there are injectables available as well. Like, so the conversation I always have is injectables are not for everybody, but again, it's a nice choice for folks 
I have a lot of patients actually who where where that kind of stigmatization is a big issue and they're having to hide their meds and they have expressed such relief that they can come in and get an injection now and that they just come into the doctor's office, they get their injection every two months, they don't have to worry about hiding pills at home or also for people who don't take other pills, right, who aren't used to it. Sometimes it's a good option. Now, I have plenty of patients for whom it's not a great option. They don't like pills. Life, life is chaotic. Coming to a doctor's visit every two months is a little bit too much. So there's pluses and minuses, but I think it kind of gets to that point of personalization, right? What is right for one person is not going to necessarily be right for the other. And although we have kind of a limited number of starting points, there's a wide variety of medications and treatment options out there. I think, again, the side effect piece is something we know with the second generation instees weight gain has been a major issue for many patients. And we don't have great data that switching necessarily helps a ton with it, but I think it's something to consider. And if you're talking to somebody for whom that might be a major issue, then maybe starting something different and then moving to a different single tablet regimen down the road might make more sense. But be flexible, I think would be the thing to say is we do have guidelines, we do have regimens that we want to stick to in certain spaces, like when you're first starting. But that starting point is not committing you to that over the long, long haul. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think about when you talk about lifestyles and we talk about people who are newly diagnosed and having to go through this process, right? I even think about there are so many individuals, women specifically, who get that required testing because we know that in some spaces when an individual may go in and say, I want to be tested for everything, HIV may not be included in that. But for women who are pregnant, there is that requirement for them to get tested for HIV, right? So when they're going through that, if they were to test positive at the time of pregnancy, now that kind of shifts the conversation overall, because now they're concerned about how is the child impacted and how do I start treatment and what does this look like long term? So now we've added another layer of complexities, right? So knowing from a provider perspective, because there's so much to know, how do you know it all, right? But at the mm -hmm. same time, knowing what resources are available out there for them and knowing that breast and chest feeding is absolutely an option, right? There have been updated CDC guidelines. There's support groups for not only mothers, but for providers. So I think that's another layer of something that I just wanted to make sure that we don't forget in this conversation because there are so many layers and complexities. But that is such a specific population that is often targeted when it comes to new diagnosis because of that required testing at the time of pregnancy. Yeah, that's a really good point. It is interesting because I also find with a lot of my newly diagnosed patients, one of the very first questions they'll ask is, what does this mean for my reproductive health? Can I have a family? Can I get pregnant? And many who assume you can't, right, which is obviously not correct. Um, so part of again that first visit and when i say first visit maybe i really mean first like four visits uh because like i say a lot of times you end up having to repeat yourself or just kind of reiterate things but part of that visit has to be to give a little bit of space for that person to talk about what their concerns are and saying kind of like what are the things with this that are worrying you what is weighing heavy on you with this and so often reproductive health is one of the top questions so being able to give people those reassurances, even walk them through, what does it look like to get pregnant living with HIV? How do we go about that? Like what kind of prenatal work do you do? What happens once you are pregnant? What's the same and what's different in terms of managing pregnancy when you're living with HIV? 
And then, yeah, I think that breast chest feeding is such a good thing and very liberating for so many people just to know it's an option. Breast and chest feeding is such a personal choice. It's something that even outside of the sphere of HIV can get very fraught for people and parents. And so knowing that a patient is not going to have to be limited or stigmatized because they don't necessarily, you may be in a situation where people would really be questioning you if you're not breast or chest feeding and you don't want to have to explain why I'm not doing this. And so knowing that you have the option, but also how to do it safely, like what does that look like? With that choice, what are the sort of responsibilities that come with it to make sure it's being done in a safe way for the child? You know, so there's a lot of conversation around it. Again, it's about choice and having options. And the more I think that people feel that they have those choices and options, the more in control of their health they feel. And the more in control of their health, the better it's going to be and the better they're going to be able to manage in the long run. Yeah. And I think equally as important as not just the choice, but also the support. Uh, because mm-hmm. I am connected to a women's-based organization that focuses on HIV and women. I have heard several stories about women having to switch providers because they just didn't get that provider support. And I think it's often because breast and chest feeding wasn't really a common thing when we consider women who are HIV and birth bearing and things of that nature. So it goes kind of back to making sure that we're approaching this and attacking this, if you will, as a team and making sure that we have all of the facts as far as from a medical standpoint, but also what is in the best interest of me to feel like I have that control over my life while I'm living with this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a two-way street. And, and my experience has generally been in the world of HIV medicine, people have are moving away from it, but of course not everybody, but really moving away from this sort of top-down approach and really understanding that this is a dyad. It's a conversation. It's something that I'm here as the provider. I have a certain amount of knowledge and expertise in certain areas that I'm bringing to this conversation. And then someone comes in as the patient and they're also bringing knowledge and expertise of themselves and their life and their experiences. And that those things need to be equally weighted um, and understood. I think too, one of the things that we have to talk about is setting the stage I think a lot of what we talk about with Rapid Start or with just starting ART in general, you're really laying a foundation for something that probably is going to be a lifelong conversation, right? A lifelong journey. And you can take some steps early on to really set a tone of how to be successful. I think we kind of have come back a couple of times to this is a lifelong process. This is not something that we're dealing with today and tomorrow and then it's over. I think one of the things I've sort of chuckle in the back of my mind. I'll have patients who come in and and we talk about adherence and I say like, look, these are the things that are important about adherence. I'll give them kind of the spiel about resistance and the importance of taking medications routinely. Luckily, we have medications now that are a little bit more forgiving, which is great, but obviously encouraging people really to try to take their medications and what the implications are if things go too sideways. My patients will say, oh, no, doc, I'm going to take my pills every day. Trust me. I'm like, look, I know you feel that way right now because you're going through a big emotional experience around this right now. And and I get that. Talk to me in six years (laughs) Um, and see how you're feeling at that point. And again, just sort of like, how do we make it as easy and low barrier as possible? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I chuckle, too, because I was definitely one of those people where in the beginning I was like, I'm going to take my medication every day. But that reminder is sometimes hard. So I remember even having to call my pharmacy and freaking out, like, I don't know if I missed a pill. And 
this was at a time where if you forgot, you had to take it within 12 hours of your next one and just so many of these other nuances, right? But I remember in the beginning being very much, I'm going to take my pill every day. If I forget, I'm freaking out. What's going to happen? And now almost eight years in, I'd never understood what pill fatigue was until more so recently because you are taking that pill every single day. And often enough, it's that reminder of, oh, I have HIV, I have to take this pill, when there's so many other things in life happening, right? So I think the biggest thing we've talked about, the appointment and the initial appointment, but really those first four or five appointments, because when I remember, I was being seen every three months in the beginning. Now I can go every six months and be okay. But in the beginning, those few appointments, the four to five, six appointments, are really going to be those key appointments where some things that might have been forgotten during appointment one by the patient is going to come back up in mind on appointment two or appointment three. And I think the biggest thing really is just setting the clear, realistic expectations around what it now means to live with HIV, right? There's currently no cure, but we're much further along in treatment than we were in the past. What does it look like if you're considering long acting injectables are long acting injectables even an option for someone who's newly diagnosed so really just having that conversation that's centered around the reality of the future and this doesn't have to be one of those big thing that hangs over your head because it's treatable it can sometimes be difficult to manage because of those outside complexities but it is 100 treatable you can live a long healthy life and sometimes it takes a, some repetition and repeating of that, because especially for someone who wasn't in that mind frame of having this diagnosis, they need to hear it a couple of times. I couldn't agree more. Like I say, it's the start of a journey, but the starts do matter. And the goal is to set things up in a way that hopefully will help long-term success. But obviously, there's many things that happen further on down the road. Well, Marissa, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you very much to Isol Butler and Marissa Gonzalez. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining in. As a reminder to view the full program, Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care, please click on the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.